Well, this is my last Christmas story. Um, and so I'm, I, I have forgotten that beautiful um, Christmas sweater. And I'm just going to use the old jacket um, to share with you the last story. And it's a story that's not often shared with around Christmas. And we did the Christmas story last night on Christmas Eve. But this is kind of how the Christmas narrative ends in Luke. It says, on the day of the baby's circumcision ceremony, eight days after his birth, the child was named Jesus, the name prophesied by the angel before he was conceived. If you remember, if you were here, and if you look into Luke, you'll see that that same pattern took place with John the Baptist as he went and was at the circumcision ceremony, and at that circumcision ceremony, they're asking, what should we name the baby? So they ask Elizabeth, because Zechariah can't hear her talk. And she says, let's name him Jesus. And they're all going, there's no one in your family named Jesus. And they give uh, a tablet after asking, motioning to Zechariah, what do you want to name the baby? And he writes Jesus, and they're astounded. I mean, he writes John, and, and, and they are astounded. Have I been saying Jesus the whole time? Yeah. Just... So some of you kids, just to realize that was John the Baptist that was being named. But anyway, so now we come to the same thing. And, and here, as I mentioned then, you know, a circumcision ceremony was a great ceremony, a great time of joy when they would um, bring people together and they'd celebrate and, uh, and celebrate this child and often would wait eight days because they wanted to make sure in those days that the child would live before they named him. So we're told that then... When the 40 days stipulated by Moses for purification were complete, they took him up to Jerusalem to offer him to God as commanded in God's law. Every male who opens the womb shall be a baby of holy offering to God. And they also offered the prescribed sacrifice, either a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Forty days is what was necessary after birth for there to be purification for the mother. So they would do the eight days in celebration. And then 40 days later, um, especially if it was a male, they would bring that child and they would also prescribe um, these, these sacrifices in the Old Testament would be given because the firstborn, uh, the male, um, there was a law of, the, of what they call primogeniture, which was firstborn. And it was this idea that the first fruit that God gives you is his. And so in, in a family, you would take that firstborn, that male child, and you would bring that and say, God, this represents the gift you have given us, and we give this child back to you. This is yours. It's kind of a dedication in one sense. And they would give those offerings, and this was their first fruit. It's really not much different than what he calls for all of our lives. He, he calls for first fruits. There's first fruits of, of praise. And when God does something, we should turn to him right away in praise. Um, when God um, gives us um, uh, financial means, he says, take a, a, a tenth of that and a part of that and, and return that to the Lord as a statement of your dependency and praise on him. And so they did that. They just followed the Lord and were very obedient, very humble and very obedient. And then it says, as they came to the temple to fulfill this requirement, there was a man, an elderly man named Simeon. And he was a good man and a lover of God, 
who lived in prayerful expectancy, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the Anointed One of God. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts at the very moment the parents of Jesus entered the temple to carry out the rituals of the law. This is probably one of the passages that I just um, enjoy so much because you could just go through here and just mark down the Holy Spirit and the way the Holy Spirit works and acts and he reveals and it all seems so coincidental but it's all providential because God acts in those kind of ways. And there's so much I could talk about in this passage of Scripture but I'm just going to focus on this one area and that here's a man who is full of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's all over him. His name is Simeon. He was an elderly man. He was up there in years. And he's what I call a stander. He was a stander. I hope you kind of get this in your vocabulary, maybe. Because some of you are standers, and some of you have been standers. And by that I mean you stand and you wait. You see, the Spirit of God had given Simeon a promise, and he had prayed and prayed, and he had waited and waited, and he had hoped and he had hoped, believing that what God had said through the Holy Spirit would be true, that he would not die until the Messiah, the Anointed One, had come, and he had actually seen this child. And so he stood upon the promise of God. He stood and stood. He was a stander. He waited and waited. He endured. He persevered. He held on to the promise. I'm sure there was times he was ready to let it go. I'm sure there was times he was angry, thinking, God, what are you doing? It doesn't look like... I'm sure there was times he wondered whether he was just heard some voice. Was this really the Holy Spirit? I mean, is this just more my dream, my desire, than really God's desire in my heart? Did he speak to me? If you've been a stander, you know what that's like. Because I think he was a stander, and he stood, waiting and waiting for many years. And he stood on the promise of God. I know in my own heart there's been a number of promises. One of the promises that I've stood for for a a long time and I continue to stand for is something that was given me really 25 and then again 20 years ago where my prayer has been that we would in this western area um, as people of God experience a reviving work of God where we would have such a Revelation and outpouring of a spirit that people would be transformed, not changed because of some legalistic um, desire to follow God, but changed because they were overwhelmed by the love of God. And as people were revived in their hearts, they would go and they would share and there would be an awakening and, and there would be a, a, a work of God in our church and in the churches all around the area. And I continue to stand on that. And I continue to wait. It's really interesting as I was preparing this and thinking about it. um, Someone who attends our church and said they wouldn't be able to be here today, but were so excited that I shared that I was going to share their email to me. They sent it to me just a couple days ago, and I'd asked them quite a while ago because they have been standing and standing and standing. And they're relatively new in their faith. Um, So when I say they've been standing, they've been standing for a promise of God for the last about two, three years, maybe two years. And, and, um, but it's been one that's just deep in that person's heart. And this person writes, 
Standing for a promise of God by no means is easy. It's really hard and can get lonely. But standing is an assignment from God and anything less is disobedience. I'm going, this is a new believer. I wish I had some of this understanding. What is standing? How would you define it? Standing is waiting for God's best. Standing is never giving up on God or giving up on what God has promised you. It is trusting God even when the circumstances seem really bad and the world says, walk away. Standing is asking God to change us from the inside out to make us the kind of person necessary to be a part of the fulfillment of that promise. There's more to this, and I'll read more of it, but I just want to stop. I said, I think that's such an important line because standing, really think about it. Expectation for what God's going to do, waiting, standing, leads to preparation. You, you, you know, if you say, God, I, I really um, desire this, it will lead to you doing things in your life to get your heart prepared to be a part of that promise. So that you can say, God, I'm not just waiting and kind of just passively sitting here, but I'm, I'm going to actively take part in this because as I um, begin to allow you to do the things in my heart and my own character, you will begin to form in me what needs to be there for the promise even to be fulfilled. And it's never easy. Standing starts with you and God, this person writes, with your relationship with the Lord, asking God to change you, to search your heart and remove all your sin in your heart which could be anger, bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness. He'll begin by working all the areas of your life, convicting and revealing what needs to change. And with this individual specifically, had shared with me that part of what made a real big difference in, 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 in this one's life was going to um, a gateway prayer session where God did a whole lot of healing in their heart. It requires obedience, even when it's something I don't want to do or it doesn't make sense, or it makes me look f- or feel crazy. Being obedient to God is key in standing. Completely surrendering to God's will and way. I have to choose to completely surrender to God and to die to my flesh daily. And I love this because now this person goes on and starts sharing some of the things that make it easier to stand. Support and other standards is essential. This person said to me, you know, I, I might even... Maybe I'll I'll start a standing ministry in our church. God has put so many godly women in my life. I've gotten to witness God's promises fulfilled as I stand with others. And these people have become almost like family to me. We lift each other up, encourage each other, and are just there for each other. We understand and can feel and know the pain of what the other standers are going through. Having a good, strong, encouraging support system is huge while you stand. Encouragement and signs are also critical as you stand. God speaks to me through his word, through signs, through other people's, through books that I read, even license plates. On those really tough days when I feel like I just can't stand or do this anymore, God will give me a sign as a confirmation. God's timing is just that, God's timing. Do not put a timetable for God or keep him in a box. This is all for his glory and will not happen until his effective time. Standing places you in the center of spiritual warfare. So I put on the full armor of God every day over me and my family, fasting, praying fervently. Finally, 
Praying God's word is like God's breath. For the word of God is living and active. I've learned to have complete faith in God, to know this is all for his glory. This is about generations to come. This is about others coming to Christ. It's about restoration for not only us, but for our families as well. And I'm teaching my children the power of prayer and God's faithfulness as I stand. The journey with God is not something I ever imagined it could be. He's my everything as I'm learning who I am in Christ and that I'm his first and that he loves me deeply. That's kind of neat because I was going through this message and thinking, oh God, I'd be really nice to be able to share like a testimony or someone who's, and then bing, that next day God puts in my email this and I go, wow, that might be it. I'm a little slow. Anyway, <clears throat> but this is what we're doing um, when we head into this first week in January. We're, we're kind of saying as a church family, we want to hear you, God. We're hungry for you. We, we want to take a humble posture as we kind of begin this first series in January. It's, it's called Be Great, and it's the whole idea is really being great means knowing who God is and who you are. That's really the, the key of humility. And we're going to start it with prayer, and we're going to start it with standing. We're going to start it by standing and saying, God, speak to our hearts because we as a people, in this church at least, for this area. I hope you're with me on this. We want to reach the destiny that you have for us. We don't just want to put on services and we don't just want to have programs and we don't want to just have things for our kids to do. We want to be your people and do what you want us to do. So we're going to stand and we're going to fast and we're going to say, God, do in us what you want to do. Now, I often say one of my favorite verses is, um, uh, and I'll say, you know, one of my favorite verses is, and, and I got to share with you, I'm going to share with you a verse that really is one of my top five, okay? I got a lot of favorite verses, but this is one of my top five. Paul writes in Romans 4, 18 through 21, this is the standards verse. If you want a verse to stand on, to memorize, and to make it your own, It says this about Abraham, listen to this, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Now that that just is a strange words that Paul puts together against. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Had him look at the sand, said, you know what, Abraham, more than the sand someday, when he's probably in his 40s, 50s, whatever, Maybe earlier, you and Sarah are going to, you know, your descendants going to be more in the sand. And look up at the skies. Count how many stars there are. And he's looking up and he's seeing. He's, and God's going, you know, more than you can count will be your descendants. And he stood and he stood and he stood and he waited and waited and waited. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. And without weakening in his face, he faced faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. It's just a statement of, there's no way I'm going to make this one happen, only God can. If it's going to happen, God's got to fulfill it. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That's what Simeon was doing as he stood waiting on God's promise, who said, you will see my anointed one, my son. 
pliable, obedient, never wavering in faith, the Spirit of God moved him at the right moment to the right place. Because I can promise you when you stand on God's promise and you say, God, I am your person, and it doesn't mean you won't blow it, it doesn't mean you won't go through difficult times, it doesn't mean that at times you're ready to give up, it doesn't mean any of that stuff. It just means that when you say, God, I know you love me, and I'm going to stand more not on my own love for me but <laughs> and for you, but I'm going to stand on the love you have in your heart for me. I'm just going to stand that I know you love me even even in my sin. When you stand on God's promise, he will move you to participate through the fulfillment of that promise. So back to the story. Simeon took him into his arms. He saw Jesus blessed God and said, God, you can now release your servant. Release me in peace as you promised. With my own eyes I have seen your salvation. It's now in the open for everyone to see a God-revealing light to the non-Jewish nations and the glory of your people, Israel. Jesus' father and mother were speechless with surprise at these words. Simeon went on to bless them and said to Mary, his mother, this child marks both the failure and the recovery of many in Israel. A figure misunderstood and contradicted and the pain of a sword thrust through you, Mary. But the rejection will force honesty as God reveals who they really are. There's also another standard that day. I think this is kind of interesting because in Luke chapter 2, verse 36 and 38, as it kind of begins the end of this, this whole account of the early stories, the Christmas stories, Anna the prophet was also there. And what I find interesting as you read through Luke is you can just note that he continues this pattern, if you, you read through it, of alternating between a story of a man and a woman. There's a man named Kenneth E. Bailey who wrote a book, a number of books, but the one that I'm going to refer to is called Jesus to the Middle Eastern Eyes. And this man passed away this last year, but he wrote some incredibly insightful books of the gospel because he he grew up in the whole Middle East. and, And for six years, from 1935 to 1995, he lived in the Middle East and he spent 40 years teaching the New Testament in seminaries and institutes in Egypt and Lebanon, Jerusalem and Cyprus. And his focus was to understand the stories of the gospel through the eyes of the people who lived in the Middle East. And he writes, a careful examination of the book of Luke unearths at least 27 sets of stories that focus in one case on a man and in the other on a woman. He lists several of these pairs and continues, the first story emerges from the world of men and then there will be a second from the life experience of women. Luke writes the gospel so that all humankind would know that they are a part of the promise of God and that the gifts they have been given are to be used to serve God, men and women. And I tell you, go through Luke sometime. It's just amazing. He'll just have one story and then another. He'll have like the Good Samaritan story of a man and then all of a sudden have a story of Mary and Martha serving back to back. And he just does that again and again. So he turns to Anna at this point. He's talked to Simeon. He makes the pattern. He look at everybody, both poor and rich. Anybody who wants God can have God. And he turns to Anna, and he mentioned that she praises God. But he's an historical scholar, so he is not going to put any words in there. He's not going to make up any kind of speech or narrative. He's not going to fabricate things. So I'm guessing he didn't have the actual words of Anna So he just notes what he had been told, that she praised God and she spoke about this person, Jesus, and what's going to come, and doesn't have a little kind of praise thing like he he does so often for others. So Anna, it says in verse 36, the prophetess 
was also there, a daughter of Phanuel, from the tribe of Asher. She was by now a very old woman. She had been married seven years, seven happy years, and then a widow for 84. She never left the temple area, worshiping night and day with her fastings and prayers. And I love these words. At the very time Simeon was praying, she showed up. Broke into the anthem of praise to God and talked about the child to all who were waiting expectantly for the freeing of Jerusalem. And here you see again a stander, standing, waiting, praying, surrendered in such a way that her will would be completely moved by the will of God so that when the Spirit of God prompted her, she went to the temple like she would do and she ends up going into the temple right as Simeon is probably holding up this child baby Jesus and making these prophetic claims and she walks in who has been standing and waiting and before her eyes, here is the one she's been standing and waiting for. 84 years of widow, a widow, married to a promise that God would once again live with us. And at that very moment as he's praying, it's not coincidence. It's what happens when you have a standing heart and expectation that leads you to prepare so that God can allow for you to also then participate in what he's made and said he'd do. And here's the most amazing thing. This is what brought such joy. Think of this. The Ark of the Covenant, which signified the very presence of God. See, there's the Ark in the temple, and it had been in the temple, but actually in 587, when Babylon came in, they destroyed the temple and they removed the Ark, and we don't know where the Ark is today, except for if you watch the movie Lost, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you'll find out where it was. But, but the temple, called Herod's Temple, had no Ark in it. So Herod, for the people, was trying to get on their good side, built this really beautiful temple. Again, here's the temple, but there's no Ark. And in a sense, God was absent from this building, catch us, until Jesus came into the temple that day. Now before Simeon and Anna, these two standers in prayer, the presence of God has once more returned to his temple, his people, our world. And he will return to any heart that is a temple that says, I want you. I want to live with you. You could almost say that by their standing, they prayed in the promise of God, and that God is faithful, once again, to those who stand waiting in faith. So that it ends in this word, when they finished everything required by the law, by God and the law, they returned to Galilee and their hometown in Nazareth. And as you recognize, Matthew tells you that probably from about year 2 to about year 8 or 10, Jesus goes down to Egypt which I have in a study group with a bunch of guys and we were just talking about it because we were going through this and just think about it. When you're from about 2 to 10 or 2 to 8, those are some kind of formative years. He's living in another culture. Jesus had the opportunity to really get to understand the outsider. And then he goes back to Nazareth. And here's what's kind of interesting because again, here's this parallel again. Luke loves parallels because we're told in 180, chapter 1, verse 80, that John the Baptist, it says, and the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel before Jesus. Now with you read here in Luke chapter 2, verse 40, listen to what it says. It's a similar parallel. He says, there the child Jesus grew strong in body and wise in spirit. And the grace of God was upon him. 
I just want to pray for you if you're in a standing place. Father, let's stand together and just say, God, I just pray for individuals here. That Father, I think they may be here and they may be just giving up. They may not be in a place where they even in themselves can hold on, but I pray that your spirit would hold them because you always do. The promise isn't dependent on us. Hey, praise God for that. Listen to that. The promise isn't dependent on you. God has said what he will do, and as you wait and you stand and you know he loves you, he will fulfill the things he said. God, we wait and we stand both individually on promises, but corporately we say, God, take us, your people, in this place, and we pray pour out your Holy Spirit in this western area, and that it would just begin to pour out all throughout the world, that people would glorify you and praise you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and we all said together, amen.